Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased to introduce William McDonough to the podcast. William is a globally recognized leader in sustainable development. His books Cradle to Cradle, Rethinking the Way We Make Things, co-authored with chemist Michael Braungart, and followed up in 2013 by The Upcycle, Beyond Sustainability, Designing for Abundance, are seminal texts in the circular economy movement. Originally trained as an architect, he firmly believes that design signals human intentions and is thus crucial to shaping a sustainable and inclusive future. William remains active with his architectural practice, William McDonough and Partners, as well as MBDC, the cradle-to-cradle consulting firm. He has also co-founded two not-for-profit organisations to allow public accessibility to cradle-to-cradle thinking, Green Blue and the Cradle-to-Cradle Product Innovation Institute. Uh, thank you very much, William, for taking the time to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast today. You're most welcome. Can you tell me a little bit about the whole, the birth and the genesis of Birth to Birth? Can you tell me a little bit about the background and the genesis of Cradle to Cradle? For me, it came from a childhood in the Far East uh, and the farmers collecting our sewage to take to the soil. And the idea that there was no such thing as waste, that everything became food in biology. Then after the energy crisis uh, in the early 70s, while I was a student, uh, I started thinking about how to design solar-powered buildings and things like that. And to work with the idea that, that we could do negative entropy, that we could not just create chaos, but we could actually create order, the way biology creates an order out of dispersed energy materials and water, things like that. So when I met Michael Braungart in 1991, we started articulating cradle to cradle instead of cradle to grave for human artifice. And the idea that we would design things to either be part of the biological metabolism, safe and healthy for life and growth, or the technical metabolism materials that could be reused, disassembled, and put into durable cycles for the benefit of all generations without contaminating the biosphere. So the fundamental idea of cradle to cradle is that instead of cradle to grave, where we take make waste, is we eliminate the concept of waste. And we honor the fact that life itself is a metabolism that deserves um, healthy materials in cycles and that the technical work of humans in the last 5,000 years, that these products can be seen as services and that we use them. So we end up calling these products of service and now it's becoming something that people understand. And, and so we see that as a technical metabolism and we add conditions of circular economy a healthy, clean energy, clean water, and good lives, and you have cradle to cradle. 
it's, it's a great and very powerful idea and clearly the benefits in terms of as you say the uh, uh, waste and, and, and getting rid of the whole idea of waste and, and, and the actual physical um, uh, physical waste itself how much of this um, how much of the benefit is in terms of the the uh, future generations the environment and how much are, is there for the actual organizations themselves that are embodying these ideas Well, the idea that it would be good for all generations is a design goal and a human intention. And design is the first signal of human intention. So if our intention becomes to celebrate all generations and offer them benefit and the ability to grow and see the world as something that is getting better because we're here, then that's a good intention. Now, intentions and visions are, without execution, hallucinations. So the issue of execution in terms of benefiting the people who do these things, there are, there are myriad benefits. One is a, a obvious one, which is that you're putting people into a, a state of innovation so that you're starting to think differently, you're starting to see differently. So when you see something as having a cycles of use, then you don't talk about design for end of life of a telephone or something. It's not a living thing. And when you think about designing for end of life and you just stop and reflect on the words themselves, let's hope we're not successful. So uh, if you design for use period and you think, oh, I'm going to use this phone for five years and then it's going to cascade to someone else who might need it and someone else who might need it. And then eventually it's going to be uh, not useful. And, and then what? So you design for use periods and then that makes you ask the question of what is the next use? So you start designing for next use and then you become part of the circular economy because the economy is essentially in terms of the way we deal with it daily is a utility. It is a, it is using currency to create capital. So the idea that we would have designs for the circular economy is now caught on quite generally in many areas, and that's exciting. So it, it gives people an innovation platform with principled behavior, design for life, design for industry. Don't confuse the two, don't contaminate the two with each other. See technical products as services, see biological products as benefit for soil and for um, dignified human uh, connections. So that's really, a fantastic benefit to an enterprise is a principal platform for innovation. Secondly, it saves money all the time because when you design this way, we always find that for people who are highly regulated, the, regulate, the regulations actually slip away because you're not doing anything that the government needs to regulate because you're not producing something that we're worried about. That's really valuable. So um, you start to realize you can do safe, healthy things and have less paperwork. That's nice. Um, we also see that the designs turn out to be uh, less expensive in many cases. When we redesign carpet for commercial carpet with Shaw Industries, they discovered that the weight came down by 10%, the price came down by 10%, the materials were designed as materials they could reuse exactly in their system, which means they're now storing their raw materials on their customers' floors. The value of that is immense because you're staying in touch with the customer and every time you bring them a new product, all you're doing is 
using some solar energy and creating jobs, and you're getting all your materials that have been stored on their floors back in the perfect form to reuse in your product. So you're actually uh, engaging with your customers in a new way as a service with materials that are endless benefit for all generations and can become safe, healthy things over and over again. So it's a very commercially viable and inspiring uh, moment. And who are, who are the leaders here? What, what industries, what sectors, even what companies are, 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 are leading the, the, the way here, would you say? Well, there are many now. Um, the distinction that I think is, is important is the qualification. So uh, the, the leaders that we've had the privilege to work with have been companies like Ford Motor Company, uh, NASA, uh, Steelcase Corporation, the world's largest furniture company, is now I think 70% cradle cradle certified furniture. Uh, Herman Miller, the same. So the top two furniture companies have both engaged in. Um, the Shaw Industries I mentioned is part of Berkshire Hathaway. It's the largest carpet company in the world. And for them to have taken this uh, as, a, as their fundamental core strategy, 85% of their revenue is generated by cradle cradle products. The largest carpet company in the world, 85% of their business is Cradle Cradle certified. Pretty exciting. Um, so these companies have really gone to the to the point of understanding the redesign of their products to these conditions. What what you also see are companies with these ambitions, like um, uh, Unilever or even uh, Procter and Gamble. You see Walmart taking it up. Walmart just announced that they're Three weeks ago, they're encouraging the use of Cradle Cradle Certified. It's amazing. World's largest company um, calling for Cradle Cradle Certified products. So this is, these, these companies are serious. Now, these are intentions. So when you look at the products, you, you realize there's so much to do. And the easy point of entry for many is the circular economy because you realize that reusing things can be quite cost beneficial and seeing products as services can be quite beneficial. But the key to us in Cradle to Cradle is that we call these things goods. We talk about the circulation of goods, but what if it's bads? So circular itself is not a good if you're circulating bads. So we see a lot of companies that make products that we would consider very, um, very, disconcertingly potentially toxic and things like that. And then they say, but we're recirculating it, we're recycling it. And then you ask, you know, is recycling toxins a good? Or are we just doing it over and over again? So fundamental to this is quality first, healthy and safe for all generations. Second is that we recirculate them, we share them, and we let everyone share in their abundance. Then we have clean energy, water, and, and, um, and we treat people with dignity and grace. It's very interesting to consider that companies like Walmart, Walmart, which are very cost conscious, would be using uh, and drawn to these ideas. Um, so that's very inspiring. Um, can you talk a little bit about the certification? What, what does it mean to be certified? Why is that important? Well, as we developed Cradle to Cradle, we realized that our clients were looking for a way to constantly improve and they wanted to understand where they were so they could see how they could improve and where. So we created a, 
a certification program for our private clients, Steelcase, Herman Miller, Ford, uh, uh, Shaw Industries, people like that. And the soap, uh, now we have L'Oreal, people like that. And um, the certification looked at these five dimensions and down to the parts per million, parts per billion. So once we had done it, we realized it was actually something that would be of benefit to the public. And we had it reviewed, peer reviewed, and carefully and scientifically. And then we gave it to the public um, about five years ago. Uh, and created an institute, not-for-profit, independent, third-party certification body. So what it means to get certified, if you take your product, let's say you're walking around with a, um, a bottle of soap, and you say, uh, it says cradle-to-cradle certified. What it means is that it has been given to an assessor, and so we kept uh, the company that I run for this is called MBDC, which is where we originated the certification. We've now got 15 assessors so that we want it to become a big thing around the world. So there can be many people. It would be like having general accounting principles. You need accountants and people can go hire accountants who are able to deal with this. So we have 15 assessors, soon to be hundreds, uh, we hope. And then you assess your product against these criteria, these five criteria, down very detailed. And then that assessment is given to the Institute, the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, the certification body. That assessment is reviewed for its consistency and um, clarity to the meeting the protocol of that certification standard. And then a certificate is issued to the company and they can call their product Cradle to Cradle Certified. There are levels. The first level is called basic, which means you have reviewed your product and every chemical in it and things like that, and you know what it is. And that you don't advertise. You can put it on the website that, that it's been reviewed, but it's basic. Then you get into bronze, silver, gold, platinum levels as you constantly improve. And so your level of certification will be the lowest level within your five criteria. Healthy materials, material realization, circular economy, renewable energy, clean water, and social fairness. So your lowest score in those five categories will be your general score. And then it's so much fun to watch the companies as they go to platinum. Uh, L'Oreal has come out with a shampoo conditioners that are um, Cradle Cradle certified platinum material health. Astonishingly good achievement. Um, and then, you know, when we look at their overall score, you, you, they are now working on the renewable energy part. They're working on this other part. So all to push the improve, constant improvement. It's very beautiful. So that's what you do to get Cradle Cradle certified. Right. And and how aware are consumers about this? Because clearly, I mean, we've had fair trade and things like that, which have had a very important impact. Consumers are aware. They're much more conscientious when they're shopping now. We're thinking about questions like that. Is that a, a goal? And, and how, how has the response been generally, would you say? I think it is a goal uh, for sure, but it's uh, we're just at the beginning, really. So I wouldn't say there's any consumer awareness yet in a generalized sense. But I must say that if a company like Walmart calls for Cradle Cradle Certified and encourages it, then you know hopefully we'll start to see more and more, and it might become something meaningful. It's very uh, 
interesting the cradle cradle certification because it involves chemistry green chemistry involves uh, involves economy it involves energy water and and social dimension it actually is a, a certification that gathers both its own particular uh, criteria, but also can gather other certifications within it. For example, fair trade or um, low VOCs or for forestry, sustainable forestry, uh, or even things like reach legislation on, on chemicals, materials. A lot of these will be incorporated within a cradle-to-cradle certification. So when we are looking at forest products within a certified product, we will use the, the Ford Stewardship Council certification as a reference point. And we can use um, the fair trade as a reference point on the trade. So it's a wonderful way to have a rich a certification that is richly informed by all these other specific areas of, of detail. Well, I think absolutely what's fascinating is for a company like Walmart is the extent of their supply chains. And presumably, if this, if the cradle to cradle uh, certification, if they, if that uh, percolates out across the supply chains, the impact it would be tremendous. It would, and I think the, the 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 Walmart is focusing too on the substances of concern, and so the part of cradle to cradle that is the science of healthy products is in green chemistry is a very sort of uh, very defined um, specific part of the certification. You can actually get material health certified, just that criteria. And, and so for people worried about healthy products, that is a very useful distinction for them. What about investors? To what extent, how do they feature in this notoriously short term? There are growing uh, pockets, uh, maybe more of ESG investors, investors that are paying attention to this. Is this something that uh, they are aware of? Is this something that you think about at all? Well, definitely. And I think especially today, there's such a strange circumstance in terms of investors because if you look at in say in the United States, we have the Standard Poor's Index, the S and P 500, 500 publicly traded companies as an index, and and then you just imagine there are people with pension funds and insurance company that are invested there, and they index their investment against those. So you realize that I think something on the order of 40 percent of the asset base of that uh, of those funds is based on fossil fuel reserves, and that if some percentage of that is burned, then we hit two degrees centigrade. So you realize that we're investing in our own demise. And that becomes a fundamental investment question. And we also see that the the size of the financial markets in the world today, um, compared to GDP, gross domestic product, is on the order of uh, 10 times, you know. So you realize that most of the economy today in the financial markets is derivatives and trading and is not real. And so if only 8% of the financial markets are actually goods is GDP and only one third of GDP is goods and one third is value add to goods and one third is services, we really have to focus on the making of things that are going to be valuable across generations because this is the asset we pass on to future generations. So when investors say they want to do impact investing, when you say social 
impact investing, they say, oh, that's nice. Uh, that's what philanthropies do. And then if you say environmental impact to an investor, they say, oh, that's a cost. Unfortunately, we have to suffer negative environmental impacts in order to make money. What? And then if you say economic impact, they say, let's make a profit. So we're saying all those three go together. That is sustainability and beyond. And it's the creation of, it's the creation of abundance for sharing rather than the, um, than creating scarcity where none exists simply for trading value. Yes, yes. Can you talk a little bit about plastic? It's uh, become such a, we've become aware now of just how pervasive this, the problem of, of plastic is, and yet it's so embedded in so many products, so many uh, uh, products that, that, that we buy today. How, how, how are we getting on with that? I think there's a general recognition, certainly in the public and, and within the companies that, that produce these materials, that this is a, is a key defining moment in in our relationship to human artifice when you hear statistics being put out such as there will be uh, plastics in the ocean equal in weight to fish by 2050 can you imagine that that's amazing then we look at the notion that there are microfibers in our atmosphere that are now starting to contaminate tap water that's amazing and and then we look at the we look at our rivers we look at our our um, our quote waste handling and it, it's a it's a huge huge mess we've made so I, I think it's incumbent on all of us to start to work on this by design from one end to the other so we can actually start thinking about what we're supposed to do about cleaning up the oceans and there are many earnest attempts underway obviously this is a massive issue and What's, what we're dealing with is not just things you can see, but even things that are too small to see. So it's a very important initiative. And, and then we've got to look at what we're designing so that it, it, it doesn't end up in rivers and, and end up in the Pacific or wherever um, when it rains, because this is a design, fundamental design problem. So we have to design these materials, especially packaging, as... Uh, as virtuous value that people want to collect or that are able to be collected and then processed without becoming a fugitive. So. Yes, yes. Are you optimistic? You mentioned it's, you, you, you say it's a design problem. I guess underlying it, there's some pretty uh, challenging economics in favor of plastics. Well, that's why we see it. It's uh, very efficient. It's an optimized system now. For people, I mean, they figured out how to do it very inexpensively. Um, the uh, the the fact that the collection of it isn't necessarily written into the pricing means that it's not seen, so that it's not attended. So it is a it is a, a very big question of, of value creation, and it's going to be it's going to be something we have to figure out how to work with. Even more, I mean, it's not that we get rid of plastics because I don't think that's realistic per se. I think it's redesigning the plastics and their, um, and creating value chains that can close up and we can recover it. Even if we end up doing pyrolysis on it for the next 
few decades where we actually take as much of this as we can and return it to the to forms that we can reuse for making polymers and solids, what we call I call durable carbon, instead of fugitive carbon, either atmospheric or in the oceans, that kind of thing. And do you think the economics lend itself? Is, is that something you're starting to see now? Just the beginnings of it. The biggest issue is the value of the waste and, and compared to um, fo- the cost of fossil fuels. I mean, that's the fundamental thing. In the United States right now, it is cheaper to make polyester terephthalate from natural gas than it is to recycle it. So you can the, the economics are are going to be very, very critical part of all this. Yes, I mean, the fossil fuel industry is, uh, well, it's, it's being challenged from a number of different fronts and clearly the ongoing subsidies and so forth that are embedded in the fossil fuel system are terribly important. Presumably, if they start to change and, and with the changing economics of renewables, solar, uh, different kinds of energy like that, that presumably will play out, play its part as well in the economics of this as well. That, that's very true. But I think that's going to be mostly focused on the issue of combustion of fossil fuels. I think that the point here is that when you look at the idea that there's so much oil, so much natural gas, and even coal, that the the question isn't going to be, are we going to divest ourselves of these investments and these assets? Because when I mentioned the, the S&P 500, I'm only talking about publicly traded companies. You know, We haven't talked about the big sovereign uh, resources, but we have to find ways to use the oil in ways that are productive that don't become fugitive. That's the big design problem to put out. And I think that's why we need to be designing polymers that can become soil, so we can use oil to restore soil, for example. And that, that we've seen now how to do that. It's pretty amazing. Yes. I mean, we hear a lot of talk about the potential of uh, the Internet of Things and the fourth industrial revolution and so forth. And yet the kind of ideas you're talking about are seem to be so powerful. And, you know, the, the whole area of biomimicry, uh, these kind of ideas just seem to be how 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 well established are they? And what 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 needs to happen for these to really uh, start to really accelerate now, Bill? I think it will be money. Um, in its various applications, that when these are seen as as uh, producing benefit, and one of the trickiest parts will be when we can take ledgers that have more than one input. And by that I mean, if you only think of producing, say, renewable energy to compete with, say, natural gas energy for electricity production or something, You'll, we're going to find the solar is already hitting points below two cents in the Middle East per kilowatt hour in these contracts. And that's pretty astonishing. It's third the price of wind energy already. So we will see that happen. But what, where I think it's going to become magical is when you realize that if you lift those solar collectors up two and a half meters and you run them north-south instead of east-west and rock them from the morning sun into the afternoon sun on one axis, all of a sudden you create shade. And all of a sudden, the ground below can return to, to soil. And it returns to the fungi return. And the roots go 15 feet deep. 
and the grasses return and all of a sudden grazing returns and all of a sudden other kinds of farming return. You can do protein production with peas that have the amino acids of human beings there. And, and you can even collect dew out of the air in the morning and, and uh, use it to wash the solar collectors, use it for, for directed irrigation and get, use it for people who need water. They're, all of a sudden, I think we will see these multiplier effects showing up, but people have to be able to keep five ledgers because if you think of that one, you have a ledger for the power, which probably will finance the whole thing. You have a ledger for the water. You have a ledger for the grazing animals. You have a ledger for the carbon capture in the roots. You have a ledger for the water returning to the groundwater and healthier soil building for the future. And then if you start to add in the oil as soil amendment that's designed to break down into carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, pure, you can imagine places like Iraq with their incredible... Uh, oil reserves, thinking of how to restore the country's ecosystems and and provide healthy food for their people and clean water very elegantly. So I think we have to see a few of these things happening and then the benef- multiple benefits appear. Yes. Yes. Now we've talked about consumers a little bit, talked about investors. What about the role of governments and regulation? Clearly, there's been quite a significant move uh, in that direction uh, in the United States up till recently and uh, in, in other countries. And there are many international agreements now in different ways, different governance mechanisms emerging. What are one or two things that you'd like to see happen from a regulatory perspective that you think would help really build this movement? Well, I see things happening in the EU, which are, are probably ahead of a lot of other areas. Um, so the, there's, that's a harbinger of what's to come. Uh, I think that it needs to be seen as a potential for constant improvement. And it's beginning. So that's nice. The Chinese have adopted um, the circular economy when we published Cradle Cradle in China in 2005, the subtitle was The Design of the Circular Economy. So the Chinese are expressing great interest in this notion, and it started out with sort of a promotion of the idea, and now they're trying to implement the idea. But obviously the task is immense and very hard to do, but at least the government's talking about this and putting it forward as, a, as an idea, and then they can uh, start to think about what regulatory environments allow that to be sort of almost enforceable or encourage people. And and I think the issue is really for governments that their job, the job of, of the regulator, the job of the state, the job of the guardian, of the public wheel, let's call it, is to be slow, be serious, and look after the health of the people and their future. So they usually are chasing commerce around, trying to hit them with sticks, um, when they mis- when they misbehave, and I think what we're looking at here is the idea of creating carrots big enough to use as sticks, so that the government could say, "Look, here's a mill in India, like we have two of them right now, where they aren't even releasing water except by evaporation. The materials are safe, the people are treated properly, they're 100% renewably powered, they use organic cotton, and they're making mass-produced products that are cost-effective in the mass market. What's wrong with everybody else? You know, you can do this too. So." I think they could benchmark best practice instead of just complain and criticize worst practices. They should do both. 
Yes, I think this is a recurring theme of, of looking looking to the future, looking at positive models and celebrating uh, breakthroughs, celebrating the, the best in, in class, the, the companies, the organizations that are doing, doing the most. Can you talk a little bit about the fashion industry? I know it's something of interest to you where you've been active. On the one hand, it does seem like the epitome of the ephemeral consumer society we live in. What is the potential there for cradle to cradle and how is it going? Again, it's it's uh, incipiently uh, exciting. The first textile, first product I designed, you know, as an architect, other than buildings, was textiles. And uh, in the '90s, and we worked on a with a mill in Switzerland for steel case, and did a product where, with the chemists, uh, the uh, the product was essentially so safe you could eat it, and the water coming out of the mill turned out to be as clean as Swiss drinking water. So that was a long time ago. So 20 years ago. And so now, this last year, in March, in this year, we had the announcement of the first Cradle Cradle Gold t-shirts from India at seven euros each and nine euros uh, for the for the fashion version. And uh, that's mass market pricing by CNA. And working with the CNA Foundation, uh, I co-founded uh, something called Fashion for Good, and it's based in Amsterdam. But it's really a, a place where we can all share information and all the process we use to get Cradle Cradle certified garments is being uh, put into open source and and released publicly, so people can sit and track how we did it and find out what Cradle Cradle is about and start to apply this to their work too. So it's just the beginning, but it's uh, it's well intentioned, it's detailed, and it's uh, now commercially successful. That should get people focused. I th- I, th- I basically am at the point in my career where I just design for eight-year-olds. So I figure that that's, that's my audience. And, and when you talk to an eight-year-old, what excites me is they think this is obvious. Um, they don't understand why we would do anything else. And so that excites me, the fact that young people take this for granted. Well, of course we want clean water. Why would we not want clean water? I mean, that's why I don't understand what goes on in Washington today. I mean, a child understands this stuff. Like, clean water is good. Dirty water is bad. Now, what part of this don't we understand? (laughs) Really. And then water has to be available to every child. Of course it does. And that's what the UN's saying when they say clean water is a human right. These are obvious things to children. So I think our job as adults is to render the obvious. Well, it's just been uh, given a a big uh, boost in support from something called the Green Business Certifications Inc., which is an enterprise created starting with LEED certification for buildings and then WELD certification and uh, zero waste certification. A lot of certifications are are being brought together uh, so databases can be shared and optimized and things like that. So um, that'll put it really seriously ahead where it has been in an incipient way in the building industry because that's where we come from, I come from. And then we're seeing it in the textiles as you've seen because, um, you know, Michael has been working in textiles for a long time and uh, I've been working in textiles very directly recently with the fashion for good. So the uh, the institute is still independent, third party, 
not-for-profit certification body that um, is getting ready to to become sort of optimized in terms of process to bring the costs of these various things down because we actually have so much detailed information required to be understood that we need to optimize that using all the tools of artificial intelligence and and um, um, uh, blockchains as they come in so we can track things for their transparency and their truthfulness and their sort of what one would characterize as a the idea of meritocracy as they say at Bridgewater where um, where the best ideas become obvious as you look at all things this way so I think the Institute is is poised for to be become something that can go ubiquitous well, I wish you the very best of success with that. You mentioned, you say it's an incipient, but yet it's part of a great movement and a tremendous momentum and very inspiring. And thank you so much for sharing all the work you're doing with us here today. You're most welcome. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 